you have multiple millions of people living on less than a dollar a day per person. Very, very large quantities of industrial dyes are added to the palm oil and those industrial dyes are unbelievably toxic. 97% of those um, manufacturers that were surveyed came back and indicated that they had been subject to an incidence of some form of food fraud in the last 12 months. There's a huge demand for transparency in food, and that can be seen in loads of different ways. So some people might be interested in organic and fair trade food. Some people might be interested in local sourcing and sustainability. And some people might go to the supermarket, look at the back of that loaf of bread or tin of soup and ask whether there's any ingredient on that label that their grandma wouldn't have recognised. So meeting that demand, I think, is going to be a huge challenge for big food and meeting it honestly. That's food writer and consumer expert Emma Sturgis talking about why more and more people want to be sure of what they're eating. What's in our food, where it's from, how it's produced, is it safe and are we getting what we paid for? There is a huge and growing challenge with the honesty of our food and that challenge is food fraud. In this programme we'll be hearing of the growing sophistication of food criminals, some shocking and deadly practices in Africa and how technology is fighting back. Some of the rice that was being imported into Ghana was actually not fit for human consumption. Welcome to the Global Safety Podcast from Lloyd's Register Foundation. Well, let's introduce today's panel. We have Professor Chris Elliott, Director of the Institute for Global Food Safety at Queen's University, Belfast. Chris led the UK government's independent review of our food systems following the 2013 horsemeat scandal. Dr. John Spink, anti-counterfeit packaging and food fraud prevention expert. Professor Louise Manning, Director of Knowledge Exchange at the Royal Agricultural University. And Kimberly Coffin, Global Technical Director at Lloyd's Register. Well, welcome to you all. And just a, a simple question to get us started, really. Not the, the, the brief sum up of what is food fraud. Louise Manning. Uh, for me, food fraud is any dishonesty that occurs that's associated with food. So that could be the product itself, that could be the documentation, but anywhere where um, consumers or other um, food um, businesses are being consciously, um, there's conscious dishonesty towards those uh, businesses. Thank you. Chris Elliott. I think Louise has... Uh given a very good summary of food fraud. You know, there's no agreed international <clears throat> definition, which is a big problem for all of us, but it is about deception and it's for economic gain. It's for people <laughs> to, to make money out of cheating all of us. And well, let's talk about what the negative impacts of that food fraud are in simple terms. What are the, the bad results, if you see what I mean? Ultimately, the worst result is the food is unfit for human consumption and it causes illness um, or it causes death. Um, I think part of you know, the thing and, and, and perhaps one of the things that people don't appreciate is largely um, the, the vast majority of fraudulent activity doesn't necessarily fall into that category. Um, it, it, it's more dishonest behavior and it's one that actually 
goes seemingly unnoticed by consumers in many cases. So clearly the worst result is ill health or even death at the, at the far end of that spectrum. But um, Chris Elliott, are we seeing a lot of things in terms of not getting what we've paid for, a sort of direct fraud or theft element, if you like? Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right, Tom. In, in most cases, the perpetrators of food fraud, they don't set out to poisonous or killers that's not a very good business model because they want the deception to go to keep going and we don't know what's happening so it's very much we generally loss of, of money <clears throat> those people who are most uh, uh, at risk are all of us consumers but also don't forget about food businesses as well because in complex supply chains often businesses can get embroiled in these types of food fraud scandals and it causes massive, massive reputational damage to them. What do you think, Louise, about that? Increasingly, premium brands, especially or premium foods, carrying values which we're prepared to pay for, which are, are difficult to prove. Well, I think if we look at a fraud, especially with organic food around the world, we see highly organised activity um, and much of the work that's been done by Europol and Interpol and others have demonstrated this isn't just one or two businesses. It's a highly integrated collection of businesses that are working as an organised crime network. If we look at the activities that happened in Brazil, for example, with what they called the weak flesh incident, there were laboratories that were colluding. So on the one hand, you have highly sophisticated networks of businesses that are involved in uh, dishonesty on a grand scale, and we're talking multi-million pounds. And you also then have businesses at the other end of the market that are seeking to supply food in areas where there's often very low margins that may be pressurised, especially if they think there's a lack of deterrence, to do something that isn't going to cause harm, but allows them to keep operating. And they will start to do that as part of their mode of operation. Louise, could you just give us a few sentences about that, that Brazilian case? Because I'm, I'm not as familiar with it as you are. What did it actually involve? What was it about? There was an incident uh, in 2017 where they, there essentially was a whole range of food that was certified as being fit for consumption and a whole range of activities were happening throughout the supply chain. But I think it goes far wider than that. When we start to think of aspects such as uh, modern slavery, when we think of certain aspects of foods that we are promoting, if we cannot demonstrate it at the point of purchase, there's always the opportunity for fraud. And that can happen both in global chains, but also local chains as well. So occasionally we will see instances of where people will go into a local shop where they're being told the product's British and actually it's not. Some of that is accidental and it's just new people working in an area that may not have been properly trained. So it isn't always dishonesty, but we can see these activities at all levels across the supply chain. Chris, I think I, I saw you nodding earlier. Do you think this sort of aspiration to pay for well-being of the animal or the people who produced it or where it came from do you think that is a could be or is becoming a bit of a fraudster's charter yes i mean you will know very well tom that there's a lot of efforts going on to get consumers reconnected with food 
where it comes from, how it's being produced. And these are all really good things. And because of that, there is a willingness to pay for organic, high welfare, fair trade, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, all of those different attributes of food give more opportunities for people to go out and, and cheat. And, and, and as Louise said, you know, this, this isn't just petty crime. This is serious organized criminals are involved in this. Uh, what, what do you actually mean when you say this? Because it, it can be a sort of phrase that's a bit easily banded around by journalists. You know, is organised crime involved? What does that mean in this case, Chris? Well, I mean, if I give you the uh, follow-on from Louise's very nice example about Brazil and Operation Weak Flesh, I mean, that was organised crime operating at its very best. In fact, one of my good friends was involved in the investigation and he listened to some of the... Uh, uh, recordings of, of, of some of the interactions that were going on and, and some of the senior government ministers in Brazil at that time referred to the boss and it turned out the boss was actually a meat inspector who worked in one of the companies and was head of, of the particular uh, mafiosa. Wow, that's really getting your people in. a Well that shows isn't it because they often try and embed people where it'll give them advantage and that's extraordinary to think that that was where they felt it would give them, you know, more advantage. I'm going to come on to Kimberly in a moment just because she's done some studies on this. But, John, the big question, how the simple question, really, how big a problem is food fraud and on what scale of it is it happening? Let's stick with the, the, the global north at the moment, the richer countries. Yeah, well... First off, um, the, the U.S. Government Accountability Office started a project to estimate the economic impact of counterfeiting in the U.S. They started down that path, and then the report changed over time to a review of the methods to evaluate the economic impact. Because once you start to look at trying to, to put a dollar amount uh, or, or look at public health for some of these incidents, it's really, really challenging. Because number one is define fraud. As Chris said, there's not a universal definition. In one country, the customs agencies, it might be food and beverages. In another country, beverages are separate. So we really, it's really hard to get that number. Also with fraud, product fraud of all kind, is most times we don't know we've been deceived. So, so you know, if you have if cadmium's in it or food safety incident, we probably find out about that. But, but we have no idea what, what the base is. Thus, well, criminologists, so my, I was in the School of Criminal Justice for four years before coming back here. Um, you, they don't have a problem with that. They look at vulnerabilities. They look at system weaknesses because they're looking at prevention. And that's the thing is how big is the problem? Well, we can look at horse meat. We can look at a couple key incidents and say that the problem is, is catastrophic. But what we need to do then is look at the vulnerabilities or those system weaknesses. And I think that's something like what, what Chris is doing uh, with his group of constantly looking at different ways to measure, uh, to detect, number one, is, is the, the key at the start. So I'm, I'm avoiding your question of how big is the, is the problem other than saying it's just really darn big. Okay, you've given it an adjective at the end there. That was what I was after. Um, Chris, did you, was that a quick wave or were you... Were... Just a follow-on from John because... There are different people have produced different figures for the, the scale of food fraud, and they are all guesstimates. And because, again, back to the world of criminology, there's an expression of the dark figure of crime. And that is really all of the unreported criminal activity or those things that you don't know that are actually going on. And that is food fraud. And it you know, absolutely sums it up. We really have absolutely no idea. All we know, it's a very, very big number and probably it keeps on growing. Right. Well, 
Kimberly, you have recently done uh, some research on this, uh, done some survey work. Uh, tell us what you found. Yes, yeah, so Lloyd's Register recently undertook a survey of the 100 of the top global manufacturers of beverages around, um, around the world. And really remarkably, or maybe not so remarkably to all of us that are on the call, 97% of those um, manufacturers that were surveyed came back and indicated that they had been subject to an incidence of some form of food fraud in the last 12 months. Also, 80% of those respondents to that survey said that they felt that it was an area that was specifically growing um, across their sector and that they needed to actually take um, more awareness of and were actually really looking at what they could do about it. I think there was also only 22% of manufacturers are very confident that suppliers meet food safety standards. Yeah, so look, this is kind of the swing and the roundabout um, in that survey. The survey was broad, so it didn't look just at fraud, but it looked at fraud, it looked at supply chain risk, and it looked at kind of some of their commitments from a sustainability perspective. And interestingly, when we kind of put those pieces together, had had issues with food fraud or in the last 12 months, were concerned and were putting it as a priority. 80% of them were looking at it as a priority for them. And then on the counter side of looking at supply chain risk and actually looking at kind of how they evaluate their suppliers, there were two key things, two key takeaways from the survey results. From my perspective, one was 70% of those manufacturers said that they'd had to make a swift change in supply source because of uh, the impact of the, of the pandemic. And they were also, however, said that a very, very low margin, I think it was 22%, actually came back and said that they had really high levels of confidence that um, their suppliers were actually meeting, you know, baseline food safety standards. You mentioned the pandemic. I don't know if anyone wants to pick up whether what, if any, impact the pandemic has had on the food fraud landscape. It still really needs to be fully understood, Tom. But what we know is... <clears throat> The world system of checking, inspections and audits pretty much collapsed and, and, and is still in a really bad position at the moment. So I just think it is the great the halcyon days for those people who want to cheat. Now, there's no doubt about it. They are probably getting away with blue murder. Just to expand on that a bit. So what, because of the pandemic, what some of the tracks were relaxed just because you couldn't get the staff in or kind of it was food supply above everything. What was the motive for relaxing the checks? Um, basically, Tom, the food industry very much operates on a mechanism by which of kind of verification through on-site assessment of food manufacturers and looking at um, the food safety management systems that they have in place, including in that is their vulnerability assessments from a food fraud perspective, as well as assessing how well they comply with globally recognized standards in this space. Essentially, when with border closures, with um, up and down case rates, um, those on-site visits had essentially stopped. And the industry that uh, Lloyd's Register Group operates in is a large component of that verification sector. Um, we had to shift very swiftly to doing remote assessment. Now, remote assessment has been refined and improved over the period of pandemic. Um, it will always play a part, I think, in verification, but it doesn't actually replace. I can't smell meat over Zoom. You can't smell, and that's the biggest thing, is you can't smell, and in some cases you can't hear. And so it will not fully kind of replace ever that, that verification process for food manufacturing. And John Spink, you've said that crime adjusts to any situation. So presumably if the situation is a little less inspection, 
And maybe, as Chris said, they could be getting away with blue murder. Well, yeah, and, and you know, really from a criminology standpoint, the, the reporting, the data is, is very slow to get to us. You know, because we need to, these activities need to be occurred, they need to be found, they need to be investigated before they're, they're really in a, in a register that we can, we can look at. But we do know right away the vulnerability changed instantly. And so see, right there is the, the efficiency of using crime prevention, is we didn't have to wait for data of which products, what was happening. We could see right away this lack of an audit, lack of inspection, something else. But the thing is, is like one thing with Zoom is that you can be a lot of places at once. So I'm UK this morning. I'm, well, let's see, what is it? Mexico this afternoon, South Africa tomorrow. So all of a sudden, then a part of what I, I'm doing is, is it can be very different. So if we did have the systems in place to change, then we could very quickly monitor. Again, remember, bad guys don't like to leave their fingerprints. So if we make them submit something, well, as Luis said, the, the com compliance versus really meeting the, the goals, then, then we, we have something like the Global Food Safety Initiative requires a vulnerability assessment, not a lot of detail on it, but requires one, requires a strategy. So you could, you could ask the, the supplier to send it to you. And right there, that's fingerprints. They're showing you, they're committing, saying, yes, I did this. Here's what it is. Now, let's say in a year, Kimberly goes in and audits them. Well, she can pull that past document and she can start to compare things. What we've seen over time is early on, we were researching and we stated what is food fraud. And that shifted to how to deal with it. But I, rem I remember Aesop's fable, belling the cat. So yeah, it sounds great. Put a bell on the cat, the mice say. But how do you get the bell on the cat is the big question. So, so then now we've moved on to really how much is enough and that's looking at that vulnerability, the system weakness, and finally, how to, how to start, how to implement it. So all of this pressure and all the activity that we've all had is really leading to some things that are really helping change uh, the, the really fundamental nature of how we address this. Back in 2013, the horsemeat scandal rocked the UK and Europe, but perhaps its most constructive legacy was the setting up of the National Food Crime Unit, part of the Food Standards Agency. Earlier, I caught up with Giles Chapman, Head of Analysis and Futures at the National Food Crime Unit. For us as the Food Crime Unit, as our name suggests, we look to focus on what we define as food crime, which is serious fraud and related criminality within food supply chains. And there are certainly aspects of organised criminality which is at play within food crime when we look at maybe other jurisdictions in places like Italy, where the links between more entrenched organised crime groups and food crime are, uh, are quite tangible. Food fraud is a crime type which is often undetected. It is my view, however, that there is an increasing global focus on food fraud and food crime, and this might actually be increasing the detection of issues in a really, really positive way. So the fact that we may feel that we're reading more about food fraud and food crime isn't necessarily an indicator that it's happening more. It may actually be a reflection on the intensified focus on this issue, uh, both here and globally. The growth in, in online aspects of the food and drink sector is definitely something that we've noticed and something which has accelerated, we think, during the pandemic. From a food crime point of view, the risks and challenges in this space can manifest in, in several ways. It can certainly be harder for consumers in these online spaces to be assured of the authenticity of a product or the integrity of a seller, uh, and also for regulators to operate with the full impact that they would with a, a bricks and mortar retailer. And to give one uh, recent operational example, uh, we've recently worked with the local authority in the southwest of England to take action against a business found to be illicitly cutting and supplying 
meat via social media from uh, unregistered food premises. And this has led to several tons of meat um, being seized and prevented from entering onto the market. So while we clearly focus on the times when things go wrong, um, generally speaking, we feel um, consumers should be positive about the safety and authenticity of food in the UK. And we'd certainly reflect from our experience that the, the vast majority of food businesses in the UK will be operating safely and with integrity. Uh, of course, we're keen to identify and take to task those who aren't. But of course, not all parts of the world have the same relatively robust standards in terms of public health or the same resources to prevent food fraud from happening in the first place. Chris, you have worked quite a bit in Africa. Can you tell us about what's happening there? So, I mean, I think we're, we're moving from the global north to the global south. And if you think of Africa as a continent, 50 plus countries they don't have the same level of infrastructure, the same amount of investment in, in food safety and food integrity. So the opportunity for people to cheat in, in those countries is very, very high, Tom. And we, we've done quite a lot of work, particularly in West Africa, looking at uh, places like Ghana and Cameroon and Nigeria. And food fraud is absolutely rife there. People actually know about it, but there's very, very little that they can do about it. There, there's no real authorities are stepping in to take, to take many uh, countermeasures. Give me an example or a list. What kind of things are we talking about? If I give you an example, some of the work we have done, say, in Cameroon, and one of the most commonly cited commodities is palm oil. And in West Africa, it's described as, as red oil or, or red gold, actually. So... The more intense the colour, the more money that you pay for, for, for palm oil. And what you find is very, very large quantities of industrial dyes are added to the palm oil to give it this perception of being high quality. And those industrial dyes are unbelievably toxic. We've got some others here about uh, contaminated rice. Tell me a bit a little bit about that. So a lot of the work that we've done in rice has been in Ghana and uh, for, for a number of years, we were very active in looking at rice that was on sale in the market in Ghana. Some of it locally produced, some of it imported. And the perception was that the imported stuff was of higher quality, higher value. Actually, it looked like some of the rice that was being imported into Ghana was actually not fit for human consumption. Very badly contaminated with different types of fungi that produces different types of, of toxins. And... That material is getting imported into that country because no other markets in the world will take it. it. It can't get into Europe, it can't get into the US, it can't get into China because of the checks and inspections that go on. And what sort of health impacts are we seeing in countries from these, from these incidents? There is really no data. I can't tell you X number of people have got sick, Y number of people have died. But, but even anecdotally, what kind of conditions are we talking about? Often there, there are lots of, of reports, let's say, of much higher levels of liver cancer in, in, in these countries than would be in, in the north. And a lot of exposure is because of toxic agents in the foodstuffs, particularly mycotoxins. Well, earlier I caught up with Dr Ernest Taye, lead researcher at the Centre for Food Integrity at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana. We, the centre, we wanted to grow to become an African centre of excellence into food integrity. And this integrity happens to be from farm 
to 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 the table that is the entire value chain we also have evidence in another country people selling substandard drugs so our center we hope that it will also grow to become center of excellency for food and drug integrity in africa we've been working on commodities of interest to ghana and some other parts of africa we've done some work on cocoa now ghana cocoa enjoys a premium price because we have a robust uh, quality control system in ghana so our uh, quality stands out and because quality stands out we are also very vulnerable because again when your quality is high and you enjoy premium price the food process will take chance on this opportunity so we have there are currently projects all over the world looking at what we call the authenticity traceability or fingerprinting your commodity to show origin be able to detect the country of origin and that is where we are in talks with the authorities in, in Ghana here to see how best we can overcome that. I want to conclude by saying we need to up our game in a sense that if we are not well resourced, it will be even difficult for us to detect what they are bringing into our system. Louise Manning, you've got some experience here too. So some of my PhD students have been looking at food supply chains and the real challenge over urbanisation especially again in sub-Saharan Africa. And you have multiple millions of people living on less than a dollar a day per person. And so food security is a real issue. So if you're talking about the potential for carcinogens to be in food that will cause an impact in 30 years time, but your concern is feeding your children today, Will you be worried about mould in the maize when you purchase it, um, when you have very, very limited incomes? Will you be even able to find out any information about the food? And what's interesting for us in looking at some of the different markets, in the supermarket supply chain, there is much more information and people can, if they pay enough, have more information about the food they eat and integrity associated with it. However, if you are buying in a market, um, there is very little information about that food and the quality standards are much lower, but they are the price you can afford. But we also see that in the UK as well. There is already a two-tier food system in the UK. If you can afford to buy foods that are assured, that are of a certain standard, that are being produced in countries or supply chains where there's high levels of assurance, you will get one quality of food. If you purchase foods in other areas of our supply chain, you will have greater potential for fraud and a greater potential for low quality food. And we've seen that in COVID. For me, that's the biggest impact, the, the disparity in health status during COVID. Chris, you looked, your, your examples and, and your study area was mainly Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa. But would it be right to assume, I don't know whether Chris or anybody else wants to pick this up, that the, the same factors and the same problems could be happening a lot, across a lot of the global south? Oh, yes, I mean, absolutely. We, we, we also do quite a lot of work in Southeast Asia. And you know, one of the biggest public health concerns in Bangladesh at the moment is lead poisoning across the entire population. And a lot of that lead 
has come from the consumption of adulterated food, believe it or not. Wow. And adulterated potentially deliberately or with knowledge that it's that it's unsafe. Oh, yeah. It's unsafe. Absolute deliberate because lead chromate, it's used to colour food, particularly things like spices. And you pay more for, for the high value spices than you do for the, 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 the lower standard. But... And the same thing happened, you know, Tom, in Victorian Britain, was there was big issues about lead poisoning, all linked to adulteration of food. You mentioned sort of rapid development in the Victorian age. And I'm wondering if if what we've seen in, in China can also teach us something here, because it's my impression, I may be wrong, that sort of 10 to 20 years ago, we heard a lot about food fraud in China. A lot of problems, a lot of stories, melamine in baby formula, dodgy milk, fake eggs made with resin, etc., etc. But it appears to me that I've heard less recently. Are, are they beginning to get their act together? And if so, how so? What I would say is, are they getting their act together? Probably at a primary level, yes. But when we start talking about high-value manufactured goods, we're still seeing high rates of counterfeit products that actually come out of the Chinese market. Um, you know, even in January 2021 was one of the largest hauls of counterfeit wine. Um, it was Penfolds wine that was cheap, low-value wine that was put into Penfolds bottles with very nice counterfeit labels as well as counterfeit stickers to the value of 20.1 million U.S. dollars. So on some levels, yes. On other levels, no. Uh, I think we've got to differentiate between acute food safety issues that happen within a week or 10 days of eating the food and chronic food safety issues where a lot of the toxins um, where it may be 20 to 30 years before you demonstrate symptoms. And if you are um, a business that is not careful with food safety and you um, have a chronic food safety issue, then you may choose not to disclose to the consumer because it's not going to have an immediate impact. But I think the one area where we, we haven't really touched on is undeclared allergens. And the biggest area where we see an acute impact, and we've seen deaths in the UK, is where we've seen substitution of, for example, one nut for another. So we see substitution of peanut powder for almond powder if there's been a problem with the almond harvest or the price goes up and that goes into a curry. Uh, very often it may be labelled as almond powder. Also, where we see the growing rise of vegan products, and uh, products being sold as coconut milk, where at some point in that supply chain, dairy milk has been substituted. They can cause anaphylactic shock and death very, very quickly. So I think within all the things that we're talking about, there's some very specific issues that all businesses need to think about. It goes back to what John was saying about vulnerability. When you do your vulnerability risk assessment, if you have got powdered product, if you can't see what it is and it happens to be an allergen, that has to really go up your risk rating for food fraud. That, that's a really interesting point. And also it reminds me of, uh, of a story I did a few years ago uh, uh, about uh, substitution of uh, pork protein for chicken protein, which had huge issues with regard to uh, ethical um, uh, halal concerns, etc., which are an, an extremely important issue of the ingredients of food for certain sectors of, of the population. But if I could just stick to the, the Chinese example for a moment, what I was wondering, and, and once again, I, I may be putting two and two together and making five here, Chris, is that whether 
one of the ways that you help prevent food fraud is you begin to build up the sort of civil society, the the the, the policing, uh, all the sort of institutions around it. That when you're a sort of rapidly developing agrarian economy, you don't have yet, but they do follow on, and maybe that's what we need to see in the rest of the global south. China is a great example because you're absolutely right. And, you know, they were just fraught with scandal after scandal. It was gutter oil, it was melamine in, in milk. And what China, I think the biggest impact was that consumers in China lost trust in food that was actually produced in China. And the government in China got extremely worried about this because when you lose trust in your food supply system, actually you lose trust in your government. Not a good thing to happen in China. So the actions of the president there, Xi Jinping, he declared that China was going to have the safest food safety system in the world. And he made that policy speech on quite a number of occasions and keeps doing it. And what they did was, you're absolutely right, they invested in the infrastructure. There, there are more than one million food safety inspectors in China now. They have the most draconian legislation in the world. They, they have executed people who have perpetrated food fraud. So it is changing quite dramatically. And, and only in China will you get these changes happening so quickly. I think one of the great things that I've seen that they've been doing in China recently is they've now actually introduced just recently new legislations whereby um, open marketplaces and online sales can now be held responsible for the sale of fraudulent products on those on those on their marketplaces, which I'm not aware of any place else in the world that has actually enacted that type of control. And I think that's one of the things uh, that I wanted to say too, with regards to the impact of the pandemic, is you're actually starting to see food being purchased. Um, even in, you know, very developed countries um, on and through these marketplaces because people can find that they can afford food in those marketplaces that they, they can't necessarily buy in the standard supermarket. And it offers a risk because they're, they're virtually uncontrolled in many cases. So what other solutions are there out there? John Spink, I'm going to start with you. Are there kind of handheld tech solutions out there that are going to enable us to identify the food is what it says it is, perhaps in those, uh, some of those credence areas as well, John? Well, the big thing is, is, is first to don't be a solution looking for a problem to solve. Focus on the problem. And so like in Nigeria, when they had counterfeit medicines, they needed to have a way to test rapidly in the marketplace of the products that were supposed to be there. So they have these handheld devices that can check the profile of that product, the, the, the chemical fingerprint against what, what's supposed to be there. Now, now, medicines are different because most of them are synthetic chemicals, you know, really engineered, so they're, they're very precise, but they had a specific problem. Now, in another case that, that you know, maybe, maybe that was, uh, if it was stolen goods, then if you authenticated the product, you'd know it was authentic, but it would be, you wouldn't know if it's stolen or not. So we need to really apply the, the appropriate tool and method to a specific problem. Louise, I, I, since I mentioned that you, you're across the DNA and, and the, the application of that for, for DNA testing. Well, I think what we have to think about is there are both targeted and untargeted methods. So an untargeted method produces a fingerprint for a food where you can say this food is not as it should be. 
You don't know what it is. You don't know what's happened to it. But you can say this product is not what it's reported to be on the label. We can also have targeted methods where we know that there are certain problems um, in the supply chain where we can look for those individual products with foods that we know have had a history of that problem. One of the things that's coming out of COVID is the laminar flow technology. And I think that is really exciting if we are looking at proteins or DNA. Chris, beyond uh, better civil institutions, possibly draconian penalties that we talked about earlier, what other solutions are there out there? Really, what what we're more involved in than anything else, Tom, now is we call it transparency, transparency of supply chains. So it's generally those supply chains which are most opaque and you you have most of the problems with. So we're working on quite a number of projects where we are digitizing the supply chains using different types of of digital technologies, blockchain and so forth. Hang on, I'm not going to allow you to use the the B word uh, (laughs) without giving us your your 20 or 30 second uh, kindergarten explanation of what is blockchain and how it can help in this space. We record lots and lots of information on spreadsheets. You just do it in a digital way. That's all you're doing. You're putting information into big IT databases and that that can get shared across supply networks but the thing tom is blockchain is wonderful but it's nearly as easy to cheat on a digital ledger as it is on a spreadsheet as well so some of the things that louise was talking about is you need tools to verify that the information going into those digital ledgers are, are correct and accurate and we're doing a lot of work in these you know This is my computer mouse and we can scan foods and produce fingerprints within a few seconds. Those fingerprint scans can also go into those digital ledgers and track them across supply chains as well. And yes, there's a cost involved, but actually some of the information that is produced is actually helping drive productivity on farms as well. So, you know, these technologies will pay for themselves. So what, if any, is the role for the consumer in this? Um, Kimberly? If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. That was very short and sweet. <laughs> if it, look, if it's a deal, you've got to ask yourself a question about where did it come from? Am I buying it from a reputable source? Uh, who else would like to pick this up? Louise? They need to report misrepresentation. Um, and one more thing, what we're seeing is the rise of the use of social media. So there was a case um, probably about 18 months ago now with a pesto where it was actually identified um, by the uh, company because somebody tweeted that their wife had had an allergic reaction to the pesto. That's how the industry found out there was peanut in it. So I think um, the use... Um, they didn't know, no, because it it had been substituted at some point in the supply chain. Um, and so I think social media is very exciting in how that could be used to for consumer citizens to report incidents. Look, I think one thing that consumers also need to bear in want, bear in mind in that that looking for that deal and actually it being too good to be true is they need to keep in mind is that that the people that actually undertake this fraudulent activity, they don't necessarily have really the science to actually understand what they're doing and necessarily what the impact to the consumer is going to be. John Spink. 
So this is back to the idea of understanding our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. And so we actually got together because it's very unsatisfying to tell people to just be diligent. And so we've got, a, we call it a five word survey for consumers. And number one is be careful what you put in you, on you, or plug in the wall. That's food, that's uh, uh, perfume, anything, and what you plug in. Because again, if things you plug in the wall, counterfeit Christmas tree lights can, can get on fire. The set, so that's the first one is, is careful. Second is quality. Can you judge the quality? Can you tell the difference between the $100 bottle of scotch and the $1,000 bottle of scotch? I cannot. I realize that I don't have a great level of, uh, of ability to, to, to identify that quality. Third is supplier. Do you have a relationship with this supplier? And the key is, does this supplier have a vested interest in keeping you as a repeat customer? If you get a spam email or find something online, just any old, old retailer you find, then they don't have a relationship with you. If you go to the, the store on the corner, there may be a fraud opportunity, but you have a relationship with them. You know where they are and they want you to come back in. Mm -hmm. The fourth is online. Online is not necessarily bad, like buying medicines online, as long as you get from a trusted source, like your healthcare professional, or you go to a, you know, a, a hospital website to find, to find a link. And the, the fifth one is complain is that if you think there's a problem, if you think there's an allergy re reaction, a quality's off, complain. So careful, quality, supplier, online, and complain. And that's the way we can start to look at our vulnerabilities and act. That is a really useful fivesome, I must say. Uh, one of the things I was wondering was whether uh, it's a bit of a trend, perhaps a middle-class trend in, in, in Europe, but, but local, does that give you any more protection or is local just another opportunity for someone to con you, anybody? In general, <clears throat> buying local is good because the supply chains are much, much less complex and you can trace where many things come from. And I think UK-wise, that and there are very, very few cheats that, 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 that operate. So absolutely. And I think also in terms of, of the UK and the UK retail is now like a fortress. You know, you would need to be really silly to try to sell some fraudulent projects and uh, products into the big UK retailers because they got their act together. But I think we're, we're talking about consumers, but responsibilities lie with food businesses. And, you know, that's enshrined in European law and, and laws around the world. Food businesses have to have to give us safe and authentic food. And it's also the responsibility of governments to ensure that food businesses are doing things appropriately. Well, thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed that uh, 40 minutes or so. Really interesting stuff. Some, some things I really didn't know, especially uh, from, uh, from the other side of the world. And also reflections on the growing opportunities for food fraud here in Europe and, and indeed uh, North America. So just Thank you very much indeed to John Spink, Chris Elliott, Louise Manning and Kimberly Coffin. Thanks for listening to the Global Safety Podcast brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation. And please subscribe to be sure you don't miss an episode.